When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. This is conversation number two with Professor Peter Brand. In conversation one, we covered the career and rise of the Ramesid royal family, including its patriarch, Ramesses I. Now, we cover the second half of that conversation. Ramesses I has become king and taken power. How does he, and his family overall, legitimize themselves as the new pharaohs of Egypt. Let's explore with Professor Peter Brand. So Ramesses I then, his career develops within this late 18th dynasty context. So at the very first hurdle as king, Ramesses I needs to establish his credentials. From your research into the the reigns of these rulers, um, particularly Ramesses I, and the monuments of, say, Seti or Ramesses II that reflect on Ramesses I. How does this family establish their credentials? What monuments do people like Ramesses I build? What motifs do they incorporate into those monuments? And what are they doing in terms of establishing their legitimacy as the new rulers? Yeah, and here we have an issue that, of course, um, most of what we know about Ramesses I is either his pre-royal career or the retrospective uh, of his uh, son, Seti I, looking back at, at, at the memory of Ramses I after he died. Um, he ruled for at least about a year and a half, but it's also unlikely that he ruled much longer than, and perhaps not even quite two years, certainly less than three years. So he didn't actually have a lot of time to make his mark. Um, we have relatively few monuments that can be attributed to his reign. Among the most significant and well-preserved are actually his tomb. And even that was a rather abbreviated affair because he didn't have enough time to build it. Um, we have this large pylon gateway that he uh, completed, at least the decoration that he completed, uh, that Horam had been built and partly decorated before his death. Um, it was once thought that he may have had a hand in in beginning the construction uh, or even completing the construction and partly decorating the great hypostyle hall of Karnak. I think I've hopefully disproven that and that this was actually an original idea of Seti I and wasn't even begun until after Ramses I's reign. One of the things we don't have from Ramses' all too brief tenure as pharaoh is any kind of lengthy inscription that lays out his political agenda, his um, you know his his deeds or accomplishments as king, uh, or even sort of the ideology of kingship, and so it's sort of like trying to study the policies of Pope John Paul I, who only lasted a few months. Now, and in fact, it's a bit sort of similar uh, because uh, like John Paul I. Uh, uh, most of what we know about his uh, Ramses the first agenda is how he describes himself in terms of his royal names and titles. 
And like many pharaohs, the, the, the royal names and titles they chose at the beginning of the reign sort of signaled, you know, so their aspirations, although usually within, uh, a, you know, very established traditions of what the king was supposed to be as a god king, as one chosen of the gods, as a builder king, as a, a, a warrior king, and also a universal ruler. Um, but you can also see certain subtle um, markers that show trends from one reign to the other, and even how sometimes uh, pharaohs look back to past rulers. And one of the interesting things about Ramses I's um, uh, royal cartouche uh, names, of course, we have we know he's called Paramesu, um, uh, when he is uh, an indiv uh, a non-royal individual, and yet when he becomes pharaoh, this uh, late Egyptian definite article, pa, which means the, like, you know, they called Re, the sun god, the Re, pa Re, not just Re. That was the modern lingo, the, the contemporary dialect. Just calling him Re without the is, is archaic. So calling himself Ramesu or Ramesses rather than Paramesu is actually an archaic form of his royal name to show that, you know, he isn't just some new guy off the block, but is part of this traditional, you know, he's using, he's using the, you know, the, 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 and uh, sort of antiquarian pronunciations or forms to basically show that, you know, he, the, you know, because the past is a source of legitimacy. It's also interesting in terms of seeing his reign as a, as a break with the previous kings. Mm -hmm. Um the, the 18th dynasty pharaohs had developed these coronation names, the so-called prenomen, based on uh, uh, the use of the word keper. Uh, mm -hmm. And so Neb Kapurare for Tutankhamun uh, and other, you know, Keper Kapurare for I, and of course, Jesser Kapurare, Setapenre for Horemheb. And even though Horemheb has no direct uh, blood tie and to, to the... Um, to the, the main 18th dynasty pharaohs, he still uses a very 18th dynasty style of, of coronation name. By the time of the late 18th dynasty, the royal titles, the five sets of royal names and titles were also very elaborate. But at the beginning of the 18th dynasty, they'd been very shortened to the point, less elaborate, less extensive. They didn't endlessly add all these different epithets and different titles. And what Ramses I chose as his prenomen was a very simple form, and his other titular was very simple, but he also did a kind of historical call out to another king who was the beginning of a new era. Um, uh, Ramses I's prenomen was men pechtire, uh, that means something like established is the strength of Ray. Um, it imitates directly the prenomen of the first king of the 18th dynasty and who is credited with the expulsion of the Hyksos and certainly of founding a new era, King Achmosa, who is Neb Pechtire. And again, this has been long pointed out. I'm not just like inventing this idea. I'm Kitchen and others have talked about it for years, but it is in terms of his conception of his reign as a turning point but also the beginning of a new era, but one that is just like this other glorious era, the beginning of the 18th dynasty, and that he's breaking ties to some extent with the old 18th dynasty tradition. On the other hand, he can completely break with his, especially with his mentor, 
uh, Horemheb. And it is interesting that the, we have this small obelisk that is inscribed with the names of both Horemheb as king and Ramses I as king. Was it a Horemheb monument that was re-inscribed or additionally inscribed by Ramses I? Did Ramses I create it as a, as a monument, but in homage to uh, Horemheb, even as he struck out on his own? And so you begin to see the the, the kernels of a new direction and a new you know, Ramazai take on, on the royal office, but it's all too cut short by the king's early death. Mm. But then when Seti I talks about Ramses I, he talks about him assuming the kingship of Ray. He talks of him as being the sun incarnate, and then Seti compares himself to a star by his side. But everything, mainly in a couple of inscriptions, especially this one from Karnak, in which Seti the first now king talks about his 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 time as the um, as the 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 apprentice the protege of his father, although it talks about Ramses the first kingship, he's looking at it through the lens of his own early career as Seti's uh, as Ramses heir apparent. Interesting. So a new era has dawned at least in terms of political ideology and legitimacy. What does that mean in a practical and political sense? So I want to touch, let's touch on that, um, that sort of ideological break with the late 18th dynasty that Ramesses conveys through his prenomen Men Pechdira, and also the continuity that actually does exist between his government and that of Horemheb, I, Tutankhamun, and so forth. Um, We'll ta- let's tackle this question as Ramesses I and Seti I, so at least we have you know, a good 15 years to, to sort of discuss. To what extent do Ramesses and Seti seem to continue the system that Horemheb and the late 18th dynasty rulers had left? Are there significant changes that we can observe in the hierarchy of the administration? Do they, do they seem to change any of the organizations or the priorities of the government or is it essentially business as before i i think in these cases i mean these ingrained structures and and social systems the change happens but it happens gradually and and, and it evolves a, a, a new administration a new king can put a new face on it um, he can signal through, you know, his monuments or his his policies or his, um, uh, you know, even his reforms, you know, new ideas, new directions, or even just new spin. But it doesn't mean he can change everything from top to bottom, and he doesn't necessarily want to. So again, the bureaucrats are still going to be scribbling away. The the you know the the power structure, the elite families, all of that is still going to be there. And even when a king attempts to in, uh, in introduce reforms, um, unless they are embraced by the rank and the file of the bureaucracy and the power elite, he's going to be hitting his head up against a brick wall. I don't think necessarily that Ramses wanted to change everything from top to bottom. I think he wanted to make sure that he was in power and that his line would continue. But I don't think it's like, and again, he may have changed some of the top. He may have put his own guys in charge, you know, the people that he trusted. Um, But I don't think it's like everything changed or there was some kind of bureaucratic or administrative or 
or beyond the royal house and maybe the favored courtiers of the king, uh, you know, a, a total revolution in government affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, the system still grinded on. It still gradually evolved. Things mm-hmm. changed, except, you know, gradually, organically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think he necessarily had a goal or, or a, um, a, des- uh, a, a, a desire and perhaps not even an, a, an ability to radically everything is new and everything is going to be changed. But at any rate, um, the the thing what the Ramazide, the new Ramazide line is most focused on is establishing their own position at the top of this hierarchy as the unquestioned monarchs mm-hmm. and as the new royal line. And here, if I could, I'd like to go back a little bit into the pre-royal careers of mm-hmm. Ramses the first and and Seti the first, and how it is that they came about. I mean. Think about Horemheb, whether he ruled for 16 years or 27 years, we know that he uh, that his uh, great royal wife was this woman named Mutnojimit. We know that um, he, if this, uh, the skeleton that was found in his Memphite tomb, which has generally been identified as the body of the, the skeleton of Queen Mutnojimit, and, and it was a rather poignant thing. Uh, I talk about this beginning of the second chapter of my book called The Queen's Bones, a, a section that they found that this body of a woman, uh, her her pelvis was scarred. She had tried to go through multiple unsuccessful and difficult pregnancies. And in below her rib cage, in the midst of her bones, were the bones of a, sm- a small fetus that had not yet been born. She died in, in pregnancy probably fairly late in her term. And here we see this sad tale of Horemheb desperately trying to father a son by his senior consort, Mutnojimit, and, and being utterly unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of his reign, I'm sure he expected that he would, and that she would have a, a son, and that he would have a natural heir. When, and we don't know exactly when, at some point this became increasingly untenable, and once she was dead, as she had died in a pregnancy in a late term of a of a of a multi, of, of after a series of these, um, he seems to have soon looked for somebody outside of his direct family to take his place. We don't even understand why he had to make that choice. Egyptian kings were polygamous. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he have some other woman that he was married to that could have a son? Perhaps only the the son of a of a of a senior consort was eligible. Maybe he decided that that another lesser wife uh, or lower ranking wife, her son wasn't, wasn't enough to be able to take his place. But for whatever reason, he chose Paramesis. But mm. Paramesis was not his first choice. His first choice was a son and a mm. son of Mutnojimit, but that wasn't possible. Now, the other question is, when when Horemheb realized that he has to pick somebody to be his uh, his his heir presumptive, was um, was was Paramesub, at least at the very least the, the top of his list or the eventual choice? Was he the only name under consideration? Mm-hmm. Were there other uh, courtiers or even high generals that he considered? Uh, whether that never left the confines of his own mind or whether other possibilities were brooded about. And Horemheb chose the potential uh, uh, Paramesu. There was the the potential that there could have been other rivals or other would be pharaohs, 
And then what happens when Horemheb does die and the heir presumptive does become Ramses I? What happens to all the guys that said, well, I could have been that guy, or even I was one of the ones that the late king was talking about? And think about this as well. When Ramses I becomes Pharaoh, again, this is the third time in a row that the opposite of Pharaoh that has that traditionally goes from father to son, from Horus, from Osiris to Horus, has gone from one non-royal appointee to another non-royal appointee who, who are not the sons of kings. Even the, the principle of inherited succession could have been conceivably considered to be breaking down at this point. And also, when Seti I comes to the throne less than three years, and perhaps less than two years after his father Ramses I comes to the throne. He is the first king since Tutankhamun that can say, my father was on the throne before me, even if his father was on the throne for a very short time. It is imperative for the new Ramazide royal line not only to establish their individual selves as legitimate kings, but also to show that they are now a new royal line. And both Seti I and then later Ramses II go to great lengths to talk about my father and my grandfather, as it were, uh, before me were kings. And so Ramses II is also the first king in generations who can say both my father and my grandfather were king before me. And so their emphasis on their family pedigree and their legitimation as, as the sons and grandsons of kings, this was vital to their ideological program. And I suspect they were just trying to stay in power and establish their, their credentials as a genuine royal line to worry about completely reinventing the bureaucracy, as, as, except in what enabled them to stay in power. So that's their approach to the recent past. What about events a little bit further back, say the Amarna period? There's a lot to unpack there. So... Broadly speaking, at, at the conceptual level, when Ramesses takes power, he's he he establishes some sort of renewal or break by taking this name Menpechtira, and yet the deeds that we know about him, his actual monuments, they are cookie cutter, classic pharaonic uh, work. And then Seti the first inherits power, and he's arguably in a stronger position because, as you say, he is the first in several generations to actually inherit his royal authority. And he continues the same the same patterns, albeit with an increasing emphasis on his father, um, particularly. So that actually does lead me to a question about Seti's relationship with uh, Ram- Paramasu, Ramesses I, and the recent past. Seti I dedicated a small chapel to his father at Abydos. It's just up the road from the stonking huge temple that Seti built to himself, but it's there and it's, you know, presumably was quite visible on the on the landscape when it was uh, fully standing. In that monument, Seti, you know, references the recent past and the achievements of this new royal family as they come to power, particularly with regards to the gods. So how did Seti the first characterize what had come before in the late 18th dynasty and particularly the Amarna period as it reflects on the, the new Ramesside family? So this small chapel that said he built for his father Ramses I after Ramses' death at Abydos next to his own great temple, um, 
it has this small chapel that is the cult of the deified uh, Ramses I as an aspect of Osiris. There was a large stela that's sort of a dedicatory text. And it's a, it's a classic example of a type of royal text where the king refers to um, sometimes his ancestors or to the time before he became pharaoh. A good example of this in some ways is both the the restoration inscription of Tutankhamun and the coronation inscription of Horemheb. And is part of a larger genre, a very loosely defined genre in terms of how variant the text can be in their subject matter, but all have this theme of a king comes to power and immediately sets Mott right back in its place after a period of chaos or troubles before, which the text never really gets too specific about and it's very in a very generalized way and the the point is to establish the new king as one who sets Maud in its place so in this case Seti is talking about his father's coming to the throne um and it refers to troubled periods before Ramses the first comes to the throne now one of the problems unfortunately is that this rather important inscription is also very badly damaged. And unlike the restoration inscription of Tutankhamun, which is almost perfectly preserved, or the coronation inscription of, of Horemheb, this essentially intact, um, we have lots of gaps. And, and sometimes we can barely figure out what the theme is of parts of the text. But it does seem to refer to this time of troubles before uh, Ramses I came to the throne and how he then, of course, sets everything back to right. Now, even if we had this thing perfectly preserved as a, as a, as a historical quote-unquote document, even then it's a very kind of ideologically tinged rhetorical uh, view of the past, which in this case I suspect conveniently ignores the otherwise stable reign of uh, of Horemheb, the benefactor of Ramses I and Seti I, who they both served as the highest ministers of his government. But again, these things are not historical texts, they are ideological texts. But there are hints of what we have to assume are the time of troubles in the late 18th dynasty. But again, trying to pin it down in terms of historical veracity or even exactly what they're talking about beyond the sort of you know stock phrases and ideological themes is a bit tricky but again every pharaoh establishes themselves as you know restoring mot to its place so in the, in that sense it's a traditional type of text it also reflects the unusual circumstances of 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 the 19th dynasty's uh, rise to power and just the fact that throughout the new kingdom you have often these really interesting sometimes almost unique texts that come here and there from different kings, whether it's Queen Hatshepsut's uh, uh, coronation inscription, Horemheb's coronation inscription, Tutankhamun's restoration inscription, Kamosa's stela about his raid on Navarus. They are all weird and wonderful and unique and fascinating and give us a lot of historical information. But they are ideological documents. They are not quote-unquote historical documents, and they take a very rhetorical view of this theme of order and being restoring order after a period of chaos that is in many ways a kind of ideological folktale or political mythology. Very strong, very good. 
the Ramesid family has arrived, and King Ramesses I, along with his successor, Seti I, have established their legitimacy and authority as rulers of Egypt. But how do these reigns fit together? And how do they reveal aspects of social and political history within Egypt at this time? What does all of this mean? Professor Brand helps us understand this after the break. See you in a moment. So I guess moving now to viewing the the dual reigns of Ramesses I and Seti I as a whole. In your conceptualization, how do Ramesses I and Seti I stand out as examples of the Egyptian kingship? Well, I think they are on the one hand part of, of, of a tradition and that are looking back to hallowed traditions of the previous dynasty and earlier ages. And yet at the same time, and this is especially true of Seti I and then and, and even more so for Ramses II, they are also introducing various innovations. Again, Ramses I rules for such a, a short time that he barely has a chance to really make a mark. And again, we don't have long inscriptions in which he could sort of display his unique circumstances or his new style. So again, he's a he's a transition transi- transitional figure. You know, again, he is continuing some things in the tradition of Horemheb. He obviously looks back to Horemheb, and then, of course, back to presumably Amenhotep III and the tradition of the 18th dynasty. He is deliberately hearkening back to the early 18th dynasty. And this is part of a trend where a pharaohs of a new age sometimes look back to a previous golden age. And so for Ramses I, seeing himself as a new beginning, mm. for him, the last great new beginning was the beginning of the 18th dynasty, particularly with Akhmosa, who expels the Hyksos, and therefore he models his titulary on Akhmosa. Just as in the early 18th dynasty, Kings like Amenhotep I look back to their previous golden age at its beginning, which would be Amenhotep I imitating Sinwasrit I, the second king of the 12th dynasty. So in that sense, Ramses is hearkening back to an earlier golden age. But at the same time, he's also signaling that this is a new age, both by imitating an earlier one, but also by marking his departure with the with the more recent 18th dynasty traditions. Um, but, and again, he, on the one hand, he seems to pay homage to his great mentor, Horemheb, and yet at the same time, the largest and most elaborate monument that we have of Ramses I is the decoration that he uh, carves on uh, the second pylon gateway at Karnak Temple which was actually built and partly decorated by uh, Horemheb. And and yet not only does Ramses add new decoration where there hadn't been on this unfinished monument. I mean, the building had been built, but the decoration has been completed. And yet at the same time, his great mentor, Horemheb, Ramses feels no compunction about actually changing the cartouche names of Horemheb to his own cartouche name. Now, that's something we can talk about, especially when we talk about Ramses II, this, mm-hmm. this phenomenon of so-called usurpation of monuments. But it, it, it wasn't necessarily because he had anything against Horemheb. It just was a peculiar feature of the way the Egyptians looked at the past and sometimes the way they seemed to, we might think, rather 
were rather shabby in their treatment of the monuments of their predecessors, but it was actually a form of, of, uh, a, a kind of strange compliment in trying to associate yourself. But again, uh, we see both uh, a hearkening back to past models, but at the beginning, and especially under SETI, the, the introduction of new models of authority, new ways of presenting yourself and your ideology of kingship. Uh, and it really begins in full with SETI the first. Mm, very good. So that's very, could we, could we broadly or, pithily describe the ascent of Ramesses and Seti as a sort of renaissance. Yes, and, and of course, famously, uh, in not just one, but two of his five official names, Seti I introduces this, well, not he doesn't introduce it, he uses this epithet, Wehmesu, uh, which means repeating of births, which is quite literally renaissance. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not the first king to do it. Uh, a Middle Kingdom pharaoh named Amenhemet I had done it, but guess who had also used it occasionally? Horemheb. Mm-hmm. And so even as he declares a new era, he's copying Horemheb, and yet he's also declaring a new era. So yeah. again, it shows this, this sort of almost ambiguity or this sort of uh, ambivalence between looking to the immediate past, but also trying to move, you know, move to a new era. At the same time, it's again, it, you can't pin it down as saying it's this or that. It's a bit of both. But as time goes on, there's no question that that really said he does introduce a number of, of uh, new forms of ways of presenting himself on the monuments. As, but of course, he also keeps hearkening back to the great rulers of the past, so that when Seti chooses his coronation name, the so-called prenomen, uh, his prenomen Menmot Ray, which means something like the, the, the order, the truth of, of Ray is established, actually is a perfect mix-up or mash-up or, or synthesis of the prenomens of the two greatest 18th dynasty pharaohs that he consciously imitated. Tutmosis III, the great warrior king, and Amenhotep III, the great builder king, and also the, the living god king. And of course, those three themes of warrior king, uh, uh, monument builder, and also even divine king on earth are ones that Seti the first actively pursues through his wars and also through his building program and the cult of the divine pharaoh, and of course that's going to be carried out even more so on uh, you know to the nth degree with Ramses the second. Very good, thank you. And now the final part of my conversation with Professor Peter Brand. In this section, we cover some questions from my Patreon subscribers. And we look at the big picture of Ramesses I and Seti I as the dawn of the Ramesid era, the 19th dynasty. So that brings me to the end of the questions that I had prepared today. I do have a few questions from some of my subscribers on Patreon, if you have a few more minutes to chat. Absolutely, yes, I'd love to. Great. So uh, Lucas asks uh, very generally, do we know anything about the relationship, personal or political, between Ramesses I and Horemheb? The short answer is no. Um, the The thing is, when Egyptians present themselves in their monuments, even then, they, they're sort of presenting their ideal face. Uh, but in the case of Horemheb and Ramses I, there is absolutely no question, obviously, that, that 
Paramesu was groomed for power by Ramsey, by Horemheb, that, that he must have been a trusted confidant, uh, because uh, whether it was built on true friendship or whether you know, whether it was a, a healthy or meaningful personal relationship, uh, uh, there's no question that that a, that, a, that a king, like any other kind of autocratic uh, regime, uh, you have to have people you trust. Um, and so there's no if if uh, Horemheb is going to pick this guy to be his eventual successor, if he is going to give both uh, Paramesu and his son Seti not just high military titles, but also high civilian titles, making them apparently, we know from uh, from inscriptions, apparently the two viziers, the two senior, if you will, prime ministers, uh, and also important uh, military uh, jobs like uh, guarding the border fortresses in the northern coast of of Egypt that that were titles that they uh, they held, and also as supreme generals of the army. A priest of the gods, etc. That obviously, you have to have some comment, uh, confidence that this guy isn't going to stab you in the back, quite literally, uh, and that he'll do your bidding, and that you can rely on him, and that then you will actually want to pass it on. Hmm. Um, you know that you you want him to be your successor, and that you trust him at, at the very least not to bring your your demise all the quicker than it might otherwise have been. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily besties or what we can say about their personal relationship. But at the very least, there was a certain uh, of trust and in, in, in the sense that they were basically thick as thieves in the sense that they relied on each other. You know, he was the, Hormeb was the patron, uh, Paramesu was the client, um, mm. but there must have been some kind of basis for trust and reliability. And one suspects that whether he was an aide de camp or whether he was in a lieutenant or just some bright young officer that that that, Param, that Horam had looked upon and said, you know, I want this guy on my staff. And gradually he rose up in in the the ranks under Horam Heb, that there was there was a political basis for this. Interesting. Um I would be remiss if I didn't mention the uh relief block from the Sakara tomb of Horam Heb. Yes. That under no circumstances does it contain any information that is conclusive, but it does show a large, probably royal figure rewarding a man who happens to look very similar to the profile of a Ramesseid figure with this aquiline nose. Yeah. Without um, assuming that either of these figures are, in fact, Horemheb and Paramesu, is that perhaps the sort of relationship we're looking at, which is the, the honoured official being rewarded by his king to a degree where they are, as you say, sort of patron and client is, does a block, a scene like this, even if it doesn't show the literal figures, does that capture the essential dynamic? Yes. I mean, this is essentially, uh, you know, a crony system. Um, so I know like a patron client system, it is, uh, so you have people that you trust and they'd serve you. And if they're loyal and they're effective, you reward them. And you choose people based on who you feel you can trust. And we can see this both throughout Egyptian history, but also in, in any kind of power dynamic, even in a democracy. Mm-hmm. When somebody becomes president of the United States or prime minister of the UK or Australia or wherever it is, 
they're not just going to put random people that they don't know. I mean, maybe they'll appoint somebody they don't really know to be one of their ministers, or but they're but they're sort of their their right hand person that's their intimate political advisor or their you know personal uh, assistant. Everything they're going to pick people they know, and 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 of course in this kind of authoritarian administrative system of a, of an ancient monarchy, that's that's it's all about connections. It's all about who you're you know. And and of course, one of the things that you want to, to keep people loyal is to actually reward them. And of course, we know they rewarded them by things like the gold of honor, you know, uh, the gold of praise, which is a monetary reward, but also giving them prominence. And that is another way of, um, you know, of giving them, you know, their place in the sun. But of course, the, the thing is, you also have to make sure they don't get too big for their britches. You you let them shine a bit, but ultimately the boss is the one that shines the most, and especially when he's king. I often think of these figures as, and this is not meant as a pejorative, but I often think of them as basically mafia dons. Yes, the heads of yeah. these heads of these kinship organizations who develop large networks of allies and clients, but who yeah. ultimately are centralizing certain forms of economic power within their families and their hands. And and again, I mean, again, I don't I don't think it's bad mouthing the ancient Egyptians, but we should also not be naive or imagine that these these guys were all touchy feeling or thing. I I will say this is that um, in all political systems, whether you're talking about an authoritarian regime, an ancient monarchy, a modern dem- democracy, basic kinds of patronage are common, whether it's corrupt or not. But there's also the question of again, if you are being asked to run a country or or manage a political system, you're going to want to actually feel comfortable. And we feel comfortable with people we know or the people that are like us. Hmm. Let me so, let me also say that when we, especially when we get into Ramses the second one of the, the you know, because I I try to think about this in terms of what happened. And also some of this um, intelligently speculating, because, of course, a lot of Egyptologists speculate all the time, although they don't always admit it. And mm-hmm. also, even as we speculate what might or might not have been the case, admitting that, that we have to live with amount of uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, that's why I say I'm willing to suggest what might have happened. I can't always prove it. Sometimes I'm speculating. The other thing I just want to also say was that uh, when we think about, like, what was Ramses really like? Um, you talk about curated social media kind of thing, creating an image. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have been doing it on social media now for about 10 years or so. The pharaohs have been doing it for thousands of years and thousands of years ago. I mean, this guy invented spin and talk about a curated image management. And that means, though, the real, I mean, one of the motifs that I, metaphors I use in the book is the mask of royalty. And I say that Ramses presents this mask. Of course, it's the mask, the face of a colossal statue at Abu Simbel. And that even when that mask slips, often there's another mask because he also, like many great politicians and and historical figures, was as much an actor as a statesman. And he was Mm -hmm. playing the role of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so even when you, yeah, that's, so these are some of the things I want people to understand. So that when we see Seti the first we're told shedding tears as as he watched the the chancellor place the crown on Prince Ramsey's head to become pharaoh. We have to be rather skeptical <laughs> of that, and because again, it's all scripted. Hmm. So, getting back to the 
patron questions. So Chris, Chris asks, because Ramesses was not a blood relative of Horemheb or any previous pharaoh, do any of his inscriptions reflect or emphasize that idea? For example, do, does Ramesses I ever refer to himself being, say, selected for the throne by the gods? Well, uh, the, I, there may be a few inscriptions here and there because there's very few actual texts, but there certainly are images like the decoration of the, the second pylon at Karnak. These are among the only original monuments of Ramses the first, or even what the decoration is tomb. And yes, it, it does show him essentially as, you know, born of the gods or selected by the gods, but that's true of all pharaohs. So there's nothing particularly unique about the Ramesides, even though they may have come from a non-royal background. Uh, we often talk about this idea that a pharaoh needs to legitimate or, uh, themselves, and especially we think about an unusual circumstances like the female pharaoh Hatshepsut or a new dynasty like Ramses I and Seti I. But even well-established, completely, if you will, uh, sort of uh, um, orthodox pharaohs of long lineage also have to, quote-unquote, legitimate themselves. And so there sometimes are special circumstances. There are sometimes hints at the inscriptions that they're sort of hinting at. There is actually something, and I hope I will be able to actually look at it one day, but they recently discovered a stela of Seti I at Komombo, the site um, south of Edfu or near Edfu. And it seems to be from early in Seti's reign. And we've only seen sort of a few little pictures of it. But it's been pointed out that it actually um, names the pharaoh Horemheb in it. And I find that absolutely intriguing. And I really hope that we get to see what this text actually says, because I think it may actually uh, be rather important new historical information whenever it's finally published. Uh, because the fact that it's actually very rare in this kind of what we might call historical or, or extended uh, text for a pharaoh to me to mention his predecessor, unless it's it's something like his um, uh, like you know like his own father. But here, Horemheb being mentioned, and I believe there may have be also a, a date that refers to a time in said in Horemheb's reign in the, the reign of Seti I. And then the question is, why would Seti refer to a specific date, not in the, mm. reign, in the reign of his father, Ramses I, but in the reign of this previous king? And so whenever we get to actually find out what it's all this, this thing says and what it means, I suspect it's going to be one of the rather unusual cases where a king is sort of like actually acknowledging in some way the, uh, the, the peculiar circumstances of how his family came to power and admitting that they did come about uh, from a non-royal lineage in the time of Horemheb. Because in many ways, they would they, they don't have as much incentive once, especially after Seti, to actually talk about that their family wasn't royal all along. Mm. Fascinating. I will have to follow up on those stelae because it looks like they were discovered in 2018. So They so, haven't been published yet, so that's no, the problem. Yeah, that is an interesting thread to follow up on so thank you the last question comes from valentin and it's um a little bit more uh tangential but it's concerns the tomb of ramesses the first for some reason apparently the sarcophagus in this tomb has been rotated uh recently in the last uh last few years are you aware of any 
uh, what's what's happening with the tomb of Ramesses the first? Are they restoring it? Are they conserving it? Why would something like this have been done? To be honest with you, I, I don't know all the details for sure. The the certainly in the past twenty or thirty years, there have been a lot of efforts by the Egyptian Antiquities Service uh, Ministry now actually uh, to do restoration work in some of these tombs. Um, often also in cooperation with certain foreign missions, et cetera. And then so conservation, and I do believe there may have been a case uh, of a few years ago when at least temporarily the tomb was closed. Mm -hmm. And so it's always possible that they may have decided for whatever reason. And again, even if it had been sitting, sort of sitting in the same place in the same direction now for decades or maybe more than a century, you know, it, it, things do get moved around and they did get moved around before this. So uh, I'm, I honestly wish I could tell you exactly what was going on, but it's not within the, you know, it's not protect, uh, necessarily so shocking or even so significant, the fact that they'd moved this thing, but I, they didn't remove it from the tomb and it may have something to do with the restoration process. I re just really couldn't tell you more than that. Okay. That, <clears throat> that prompts one last question, if you have time, just for a few more minutes. The So Ramesses I reigns maybe 18 months, maximum two years. His tomb is naturally quite abbreviated compared to someone even like Horemheb or Seti I, who comes right after. And the decoration of the tomb is clearly rushed. It's in the same style as Horemheb, but it doesn't have any of the wall carvings which Horemheb had instituted and which Seti perfected to some degree. My question is, do you think Ramesses I, do you think his builders managed to finish the tomb that we see today within his reign? Or do you think there may have been a period early in Seti's reign where work continued on that monument to bring it to some state of satisfactory completion? That is one of those things that either one is possible. And of course, if you're thinking about the period immediately after a pharaoh's death, uh, mm -hmm. essentially the 70-day period of traditional uh, mummification and perhaps a little bit longer sometimes between when a pharaoh died and when he was actually interred in his tomb, that I'm sure there often was some kind of mad rush to complete things at the last moment that had not been fully completed. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we often know that pharaohs could begin to, uh, to uh, begin work on their tomb fairly early, even though Ramses II ruled for 66 plus years, you know, he, he began the, the tomb right at the beginning of his reign and made significant progress within the first few months. Um, on the case of Ramses I, so yes, there could have been, they obviously, uh, well, I suspect that they begun and made some progress, you know, digging it out during his lifetime, but I also suspect they were also trying to rush things and do what they could, because again, he died uh, before the thing had been completed and especially the decoration may have been finalized it was still done rather well but all in paint the mm -hmm. style is similar to Horemheb and there also is and this is interesting about Seti the first tomb Seti the first tomb is unprecedented in its extent of its decoration previously nothing like this and the fineness and the painting but there is a chamber in the outer part of Seti's tomb the so-called so well chamber and its decoration, and also the spelling of Seti's coronation name, and his, his, his nomen cartouche, Seti, 
that actually suggests that it is part of the same kind of decorative tradition and style of art as both the tomb of Hormheb and also the tomb of Ramses I. So it means that it, trying to pin down when exactly they stopped working or how much they did before he, uh, Ramses died and how much was done before he was interred a few, uh, you know, two or three months after his death is that is all, that's beyond what we can actually know, pin down. Sure. I would also ask you another speculative question. Sure. How likely do you think it might be to say that Ramesses I's tomb in the Valley of the Kings actually started in the later years of Horemheb, if he had decided this man would be his successor. And, you know, looking at the parallels of figures like Yuya and Shuya, Maihe Kipre, these non-royal figures who do get tombs in that valley, how reasonable is it to suppose that perhaps Ramesses actually started his tomb before he became literal king? I I severely doubt it because I don't think Hormheb would have allowed it. Um, okay. Again, a royal tomb is rather different from even these things like Tuya and Yuya. The only case that we know of somebody who wasn't currently reigning as king making themselves a tomb that looked like a royal tomb was the rather unusual case at the end of the 19th dynasty when this rather overambitious uh, uh courtier named Bai dared to build a royal style tomb for himself during the reign of this uh, young, crippled and sickly King Sipta. And of course, we know what happened to him now is he basically got himself executed and, and for basically being overly presumptuous. And unless, and I don't think there's any evidence for this, unless Horemheb somehow took Ramses as co-ruler, which I don't think happened, I don't think that that Hormheb would have tolerated, never mind encouraged, Ramses to jump the gun and start building himself a royal tomb. Now, one of the things that I wish, I hope we find is, but I, I suspect that the pre-royal tombs of Paramesu and Seti the, uh, the future Seti the first as may actually lie somewhere in the necropolis of Saqqara. And a French colleague of mine even hinted that he thinks he knows where Paramesu's tomb might even have been, but again, he can't prove it. But I, you know, and so I don't want to say who it was, but that would be wonderful. And I would love to see that. Mm. But that's where I think the first tomb of Ramses, the first was, was when he was uh, vizier in general and most mm. likely somewhere at Saqqara. That would be interesting because we do have those two sarcophagi of Paramesu discovered at um, Medina Habu and. Gurub, respectively, but they were later reused and moved far away. But yes, that would make sense that Paharamasu would consider those, building a tomb chapel there. Yeah, those 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 two sarcophagi are actually a very good indications of some of Ramsey's uh, titles and unique mm. titles. But they also it's there's no question the style of the sarcophagi are those of not of some kind of king or even king in waiting, but in fact of, of a typical high official. In fact, a vizier. Very good. Well, Peter, thank you very much for speaking with us at great length about all of this. It's been absolutely fascinating. I have kept you much longer than I promised, but thank you for your, oh, no your perseverance and stamina. So your book about Ramesses II will be coming out in uh, early to late January. Um, and we will speak with you again about Ramesses II himself closer to that time. but. 
thank you very much for coming on the show and I hope you've enjoyed yourself and will consider coming on again in the near and distant future. Absolutely. I've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That brings us to the end of my first conversations with Professor Peter Brand. In the future, I will have another discussion with him about the reign of Seti I, one of the most glorious pharaohs on record. And then, in the further future, we will have a conversation, or several, about the long reign of Ramesses II. If you are interested in asking questions for Professor Brand, consider joining my Patreon. Patreon subscribers have the opportunity to pose questions before I conduct interviews like this, and they can be a great way to get little bits of information that don't necessarily occur to me. So, if you've enjoyed these conversations and would like to be a more active participant in the future, consider joining my Patreon. There is a link in the description, or you can visit patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. My thanks to Professor Brand for this, the first of several conversations surrounding the early 19th dynasty. It is an enormous period in terms of records, material history, and archaeological information. So to have an expert scholar here to bring it all together, break it down, and then synthesize it is truly a wonderful help. I hope you've enjoyed Professor Brand's work, and if you have, consider buying his book, Ramesses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. It is informative, beautifully illustrated, and very well written. It is easily one of the best books ever written about this period. You can find a link to the book on its publication website in the episode description. That is Ramesses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh, by Peter Brand. Now then, let us return to our narrative and discuss the reign of Seti I in all its glory. Onwards to the next chapter.